Welcome to the DadWork Podcast. My name is Kurt Storing, your host and the founder of DadWork. This is episode number 68, Zen Parenting, Finding Joy in Vulnerable Authenticity with Todd Adams. We go deep today talking about dealing with conflict and other difficult aspects of life as a parent. How to use fatherhoods as a means of going deeper into yourself. Not reacting in ways that will build resentment. Exercising prudence in our parenting since children mimic our behavior, which may have an impact on what they perceive to be normal as adults. Being able to recognize and articulate feelings that are buried deep within you. Celebrating our wins as fathers instead of just focusing on our shortcomings. Why it's important to raise emotionally intelligent children. Working through your childhood trauma and being able to recognize your triggers as a dad. And the need to join a men's group and share authentically as a father. Todd Adams is an advocate for men supporting healthy masculinity, conscious relationships, and prosperous careers. For nine years, he has co-hosted Zen Parenting Radio, a top 10 kids and family podcast on iTunes, and co-founded Men Living, where he leads monthly meetings and offers annual adventure retreats. He is in the process of obtaining a 15-month coaching certification through the Conscious Leadership Group. Todd is a member of the Mankind Project, a staff member for the New Warrior Training Adventure, and a blogger for the Good Men Project. He also received his life coaching certification through the Tony Robbins Core 100 Life Coaching Program and is a certified instructor for the Institute of HeartMath, where he was trained in stress reduction and relaxation. Todd and his wife, Kathy, have three school-aged daughters. You can find online at toddadamscoaching.com, as well as all of the other places I mentioned in his bio. If you go to dad.work slash podcast, you'll find this episode with Todd Adams there, and I will link to everything I just mentioned, including Zen Parenting Radio, Men Living, and everything else that you just heard. This was a really good conversation. And I particularly liked the part where we talk about joy. And this was such a good pattern interrupt for me because, man, it's hard to feel joy. And we talk about that quite a lot, actually. But uh, it was one of those things where just talking about it brought me back to this moment in my own childhood when I learned it was not cool or safe to express joy openly. And man, it was just so good to have Todd hold space for that. And I think it was useful as a discussion point to talk about that in relation to men's work and growing as a father, that we don't have to be in the shadows all the time. It gets exhausting. And there's another side of life, which is joy and happiness and contentment and excitement and all of these things that are more positive. And so as you'll hear me say in just a moment at the start of this, I uh, really love where Todd and Kathy go in their Zen Parenting radio show, because I think we probably agree on the fact that to become a better parent, you need to start with yourself, look sort of in the mirror and do the work it takes to become a better, you know, at least for a father, man, husband, father. And if you've enjoyed listening to the show recently, the Dad Work podcast, I would really love it. I would appreciate it very much, actually, if you left a quick review on Spotify and Apple. You can rate the podcast on Spotify. If you just go up to the top of the page on the Dad Work Podcast, you can hit that little star rating and leave a rating. Or if you're on the Apple Podcasts app, you can scroll down at the bottom of the Dad Work Podcast page and click the star rating and then leave a review. I would appreciate that so much. It's one of the best and easiest ways to get this work into the hands of more men. So if you have benefited even just a little bit from listening to this podcast, I would appreciate it so much if you would leave a rating and a review. That's it for now. Thank you for listening, guys. As always, let's get into this episode, number 68 of the Dad Work Podcast with Todd Adams. Here we go. All right, dads, welcome back for another episode of the Dad Work Podcast. I'm here with Todd Adams from Zen Parenting. And I'm very excited, Todd, to have you on because I was just saying before that I came across your motto which is the best predictor of a child's well-being is a parent's self-understanding mm-hmm. and your most popular podcast episode, which is about fault and responsibility, which is something I talk about all the time here. And so I feel an instant connection and a, a desire to get to know you better. And mm-hmm. so could you maybe start by walking us through why you even started this project in the first place? Why Zen Parenting? What does it mean to you? We started this with my wife. It's basically my wife and I just talking. And sometimes we have interviews, but most of the time it's just she and I. The quick answer is the reason we started it is because my wife asked me if I wanted to be on a podcast. 11 years ago, not many people knew what a podcast was, and I was and still am a sales rep. So I have a nine to five job, but my wife is a therapist and is in this world of um, self-awareness and mindfulness. And I said, uh, so she was on a kind of a virtual book tour and somebody asked her, she asked if somebody would um, be willing to help us kind of start our own podcast. My wife 
asked these people who hosted their own podcast, hey, how do I do that? And they helped us. And um, But the one thing they said to her was, if you're going to do it, it's probably best if you do it with somebody, just because it's a little bit more dry if it's just one person talking the whole time. So she came upstairs and said, I signed you up for this podcast. I'm like, what's a podcast? And what did you sign me up for? But we started because my wife and I've always had this wonderful dynamic of having kind of really kind of deeper, authentic conversations with each other. So we basically just decided to do the same thing and, and instead have a few microphones in front of us. So um, so why did we start it or why did she start it? We it's it's really not a parenting podcast. That's kind of a we bait and switch people, to be quite honest with you. It's a self-awareness podcast. And it doesn't matter if you're a grandma or a grandpa or a mom or a dad or a we have a lot of teenagers that listen to us. It's just a vehicle of self-awareness. So um, yeah, the the motto that we actually stole from Dr. Dan Siegel, who has written a bunch of parenting books, was the best predictor of a child's well-being is a parent's self-understanding. I think I, I make up a story that a lot of parents want to um, just teach and guide their kids and make sure that they're doing everything we want them to do and be the person we want them to be. And we forget about our modeling, you know, and we'll talk about that, um, the 60, 30, 10 thing that I, I said we might want to talk about. It's has very little to do with what we're telling our kids. It has to do with how are we navigating our own lives? Are we, how do we deal with conflict? How do we deal with when we get in a reactive defensive place? And I think parents are so quick to try to teach their kids and they forget about their own work. So um, all Kathy and I do on the podcast on a weekly basis is kind of like just tell our stories of how things are going in our worlds and how we reacted. And did we have an opportunity to kind of, you know, get quiet and not react, but instead respond. So it's, it's just an, it's a dialogue in that sense. Mm, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And I love Dan Siegel recommend all of his books. Um, I just finished brainstorm myself and, um, suggest to all the younger dads listening, uh, or dads with younger kids listening to read, uh, the power of showing up. That was very fundamental in my journey as a father. And, uh, how old are your kids? Um, my oldest is 18. My middle is 16 and my youngest is 14, three daughters. Okay. So you started the podcast after you'd become a dad yeah. and what has that done for you? Like, did you start this whole parenting journey with a mindfulness and self-awareness background or was this sort of along the way? No, 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 no. So when I, um, when I became a dad, I was 30 years old and I was working hard and I was loving my wife, but I was also, you know, I was still in, I still felt like I was 22 years old. So I was out drinking and everything else. And then and then my kid showed up and I realized that I was still behaving um, like I was 22 years old, even though I had a daughter. And I even remember like just catching myself one time. I was I was just kind of rocking my daughter, my infant daughter to sleep one night. And I was romanticizing my college days, like how independent and free I felt. And then I like, I caught myself, I'm like, oh my God, I'm just like the most insane person in the world because it doesn't get any better than a sleeping infant that you helped create. And I was romanticizing these stupid drunk stories of when I was in college. And so I caught myself, I'm like, all right, Todd, I think you're focusing on the wrong thing. So, you know, over time I became a little bit more responsible and um, yeah. And, you know, to this day, I'm still... I still have stops and starts as far as how I show up in my wife's world and my daughter's world, but I'm certain I, I would consider myself much more self-aware than I did back then. Back then it was all about, you know, some more selfishness and things like that. So. Mm, thank you for sharing that. I, it brings up to, to my mind, a man in one of my men's groups was going through this exact thing, uh, which is like, Oh man, I kind of, long for those days of independence. Mm -hmm. And was there a larger process behind that? Like, did you have to grieve the loss of that? Or was it just like, Hey dude, this is what's real now. Like get your head together. It was, was more, it, a quick thing or? it was more the latter. And I, and I don't mean to picture paint myself as having this problem with alcohol. I would, you know, have, I would probably get drunk once every few weeks with my friends. Um, but it got to the point, like, I remember one time I had to have my wife, stop the car so I can go throw up behind a dumpster. And my kid was in the, her, my kid was in her baby seat. I'm like, what am I doing? So it was just kind of a, you would think I would have had those awarenesses when my wife was pregnant, but instead it, 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 
it waited until my kids actually showed up and I'm just like, this is stupid. And you know, the older we get, I'm almost 50 now, you know, alcohol does not, uh, I don't have the same relationship with it now than I did back then. Back then I would have a fun night partying with the boys and then wake up feeling good the next day. If I have more than a few beers, I get a headache the next morning and I'm tired and our bodies, my body is not, just not built the same way it used to be. So it's easier to, um, you know, skip that part of my life. So. Yeah, no, I feel that too. And it's one of the worst experiences I ever had was waking up after like three hours of sleep with my children jumping on me after I had been drinking the night before. And from that moment, I was just like, oh man, this is not worth it. Dude, it's there, so is, there is nothing worse than being hung over with an infant. Like, cause yeah. you know, usually it's like you went out the night before, so you're in charge. Cause my wife was in charge the night before. And I don't think I ever really did that because I, I forecasted what that would be like, cause it would be awful. And so, yes, I, I completely feel that. And, uh, it's the worst. It's the worst. Yeah. Yeah. And it's nice to hear that becoming a dad was like the impetus for this greater awareness. Cause that's what I felt. And all of my work is like, Oh my goodness, my children are reflecting back at me everything that I don't like about myself. Mm -hmm. And like, there's such an opportunity to be self-aware if you have the right mindset. And so do you talk to dads about this at all? Do you talk to men in your men's work? Do you talk about this in the podcast, like how to use your experience as a father to actually go deeper in yourself? Yeah, I think my kids are by far my biggest teachers for sure. And I guess I'll start with a light story. Um, when I would walk my kid to school, I would be walking her to school, like point A, point B, shortest distance between two lines, let's get her to school. And she would like stop and look at ants and look at the sky. And I'm like, no, 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 come on. We're we're supposed to be going to school and you're sitting here looking at the ants on the sidewalk or looking at the clouds in the sky. And then once again, I caught myself, I'm like, Todd, <laughs> what are you doing? Like, she is completely present and I am completely not present. I'm thinking about we have to get her there at a certain time and we need to because I have other things I need to do after I drop her off. And she was a, you know, when our kids are born, you know, there's no past, and no future. And even when they're younger, when they're toddlers, like they're, they're present. So, um, yeah, I, the gift of presence was a wonderful lesson that I learned from my toddlers. And then as they grow up, yeah, our kids are really good at finding out what our triggers are. And, you know, for me, the definition of a trigger is, you know, there's a stimulus and the reaction is much bigger than the stimulus. And, you know, let's say my daughter talks back to me or something like that. That's a learning opportunity. Like, wow, she just touched a part of me that I have yet to resolve myself. So instead of me reacting and saying, hey, I don't appreciate being talked back to like that, it's instead how is this familiar in my life and what have I not looked at? So, and you know, everybody around us can be that, but our kids are experts at it. And I, I think if we have partners and spouses, they're also good at it. So when I'm in relationship on a good day, I'm always looking at it through the lens of what is it here? What's here for me to learn? And it's usually based upon, you know, my reactivity or when I get into this, you know, reptilian brain where, uh, I'm like, wow, I'm really pissed and I'm not sure why. So yes, the answer to your question is for me, my kids and my wife are by far my best teachers, more so than Dan Siegel or any other smart book that I might read. It's It's the experience of it versus reading it in a book. Yes. And applying that self-awareness to your day-to-day -day life and noticing all these whys rather than just being indignant mm -hmm. as to like, oh, how dare you treat me like that? And I have to ask, you said this was a lighter story. Is there a darker story? Um, no, I mean, that was just more of a, you know, I just figured I'd start there, but there's plenty of dark stories, but no, nothing is coming to mind. So I'm not, I'm not trying <laughs> okay. to pull anything. I, I just had to poke there just in case. But I'm I, uh, happy to go to these deep, dark places if, if they, if we get there in this interview, like I'm, I'm happy to reveal every kind of dark shadowy part of myself, uh, because in my judgment, that's what kind of helps us get through things is to share it and to talk about it versus hide it and pretend it's not there. So exactly. Yeah. I just wrote something about that on Instagram yesterday. And then in my, in one of my men's groups, we did the secrets process yesterday, which is sharing that, which I don't want you to know. Mm. And in that process, you reveal parts of yourself, but you shine a light on the shadow mm. and can then either realize it's not so scary 
or it allows you to see where the repair work needs to be done. So I really appreciate that sort of energy uh, from you. And I would love to move on now to what you just mentioned about modeling mm-hmm. and the 60, 30, 10 yeah. um, cycle. And we get it backwards, yeah. don't we? So wh- where can you take that from here? Well, and I'll try my best to use I statements. I make up a story that most of us get it backwards. So most parents are um, really uh, hooked on what do I say to my kid when this happens? And they're less concerned about um, their own modeling of that. And they're less concerned about the way in which we're presenting whatever it is that we're presenting to our kids. So in my story, 60%, most parents think that 60% of parenting is what we say to our kids. 30% is how we say it. And 10% is how do we model it? And I kind of just want to flip that upside down. And if, if I said nothing to my kids yet, I just role modeled being a, a self-compassionate, self-loving individual towards myself, towards my wife, towards my kids. And I showed that behavior through modeling. They're going to pick up so much more through that than anything I ever say to them. Um, and then that middle part, the, the, I call it the context of what it is. So it's not just what you say. It's not just what I say. It's how I say it. From what place am I saying this from? And, you know, that, you know, example I gave to you just a few minutes ago of, you know, say our, my daughter talks back to me and I respond, from what place am I responding from? Am I responding from a place of re- reactivity or am I going to take a pause and I'm going to breathe before I respond? Because that's when we get into trouble is when we're responding from reactivity. So yeah, for me, 60% of my parenting is modeling. 30% is from what place am I saying it from or from what energy am I saying it from, or what is the, uh, what is my relationship in this experience? And then 10% is, is what I say to them. Um, cause kids are smart and they can pick up on energy a hell of a lot more than they can pick up on, you know, the words we're saying. So, yeah, I see that all the time and you even hear it. I mean, the worst case scenario is when your kid picks up a four letter word uh, and that sort of snaps me into realizing that what I do is way more impactful than anything I say to them because I can Mm -hmm. tell them that it's not polite and, you know, people will look down on them if they do these things. And then if I do it, they're like, oh, okay, that's acceptable because I'm such a role model as a father to them, good or bad. And so that's why like my focus in this project of dad work is to become a better like husband and father. You got to work on yourself first because that's what they're seeing over and over and over again. Right. No doubt about it. Yeah. Um, so I have three daughters and I make up a story that they're going to compare any relationship that they have. And I have three daughters. One of them is gay. She's 18 years old. Uh, we actually did a podcast with her about her coming out story and all that. Um, and you know, we'll see about the other two. Um, you know, it's funny, like, I don't even want to like assume they're straight, you know, a coming out parties supposedly just for people who are gay or bi, like we should have coming out parties for everybody so that there's not an assumption that everybody's straight because that's, I feel like that's not really that fair, but let's just say my middle daughter's straight. She's going to compare any relationship she has with a man based upon how I treated her mom. So we're teaching our kids one way or another. We're either teaching them how to treat their significant other in a loving, compassionate way, or we're teaching them that it's simply okay to, you know, verbally abuse or any type of other abuse. They're, they're going to think of that as normal one way or another. So, um, yeah, for me, I, I'm always trying to think in the back of my mind when I, the way I, in the way in which I interact with my wife and I have a wonderful relationship with her and we have plenty of disagreements, but we don't yell at each other. And that's not to say that if you do that, you're a bad dad. It's like that's even that's an opportunity for some good repair. So even the conflict and maybe you're not proud of the way you show up in conflict, there's an opportunity there as well. I used to have this huge aversion to conflict and I still do. So when you talk about some of my secrets or my deep, dark stuff, I my childhood baggage is my, when my parents when I was younger, my parents would fight all the time, um, you know, verbally, emotionally, physically, and I would shut down because to protect myself. And now, um, I now realize that conflict isn't necessarily that bad of a thing, but I have this childhood pattern of conflict equals badness. So I would instead avoid all conflict at all costs. And that's not the way relationships work. Relationships work, you know, there's good days and then there's bad days when there's conflict. So, 
um, that's something I'm currently uh, working on. So, um, but yeah, my daughters are going to, whatever it is that they see is going to be normal in my judgment. So what I want to do is just show them what it means to be a man and what it means to be a man is to have an, have a, a sense of equality in a marriage and there's no hierarchy and that mom and dad are of equal footing and there's no yelling or screaming or abuse. So that's, at least that's my hope. So. Mm, yeah. Thank you for that. I, I very much feel that. And that's what I am trying to be aware of. And like you, I am so, uh, I have a hard relationship with conflict mm. because again, in my childhood story, it was, if I had needs that conflicted with other people's needs, then I was selfish or bad or whatever. And so I just stopped. Mm-hmm. And now conflict coming up for me feels very scary because I uh, tr- uh, equate it with what happened before, which was not a pleasant experience. And I just finished reading uh, Getting to Zero by Jason Gaddis, which was quite a good book on conflict resolution yeah. and talks about everything, including why you know we feel these ways in the first place. So that's a recommendation for anyone listening who shares those conflict avoidance. Have you had Jason uh, on your show yet? Uh, he, we actually have an interview two weeks from now. So yeah, we ha- we, he's a friend of ours and we've had him on a bunch of times and he's, he's a total rock star. and yeah. that book, how I'm talking about how I've kind of evolving through my relationship with conflict. It's because I read that book and I don't read a lot of books. I listen to a lot of podcasts, but if, if I can recommend a book aside from my wife's, which just came out called Zen parenting, Jason's book is awesome. So I'm looking forward to having your audience be able to hear from Jason for sure. Yes, 100%. I'm very excited for that conversation. I'm glad to know that you guys are uh, tight like that. I didn't know that. So thank you. Um, I have to ask before we get any farther, do you have go-to practices to develop uh, mindfulness, self-awareness? Because what I noticed there was you caught yourself a number of times and you said, I make up a story that. Mm -hmm. And that is such an ownership and self-awareness practice that I really appreciate from you. And I wonder like what has helped along the way. And, you know, if it's just the basics, then that's great. I'd love to hear that. Uh, Before we get any deeper though, like I just notice in you a very grounded energy and Mm. self-awareness. So what has worked for you? Well, it's interesting. Yeah. When I use, I make up a story, that's just what I would, you, you know, before I did some of this work on myself, I would just judge people like, oh, I think that your shirt is ugly. Um, that's one thing you can say, or you could say, I make up a story that your shirt is ugly. Like you're basically saying the same thing, but you're not saying with any type of definitiveness. So how does that help in relationship? Um, I don't know anything. I'm simply given my opinion of everything and I'm going to own that. It's just an opinion versus fact. So, so, but to get back to your question, like what are some of the things that I do? Um, I, you know, I'm constantly trying to check myself in relationship with my family. I do read a, you know, a handful of self-help books. I'm a life and leadership coach. So I, I educate my brain quite a bit. It hasn't quite penetrated my body. I now have this belief that, um, you know, intelligence resides in the brain. It's the EQ, right? But there's also something called the BQ, the body intelligence. And that's something I'm still working on. And what I mean by that is whenever I have anger or sadness or joy or whatever emotion you want to say, I do have this belief that it resides in the body. And what I'm not very good at, and you, you know, this is a dad's podcast, I make, I make up another story that a lot of dads out there are not really good at identifying identifying an emotion. So this is emotional intelligence stuff. Identify the emotion, locate it in your body, express it in a healthy way. doesn't mean you get to dump on anybody because you're angry, express it in a healthy way, and then find the wisdom from whatever that emotion is. That's something I have been stunted on. I think a lot of men are stunted on that because the only emotion that we're, we're encouraged to display in my judgment is anger. And it's not just the uncomfortable emotions. I used to call emotions good and bad. I don't think there's any bad emotions anymore. There's certain ones that are more uncomfortable. Like I'm not comfortable when I'm afraid. I'm not comfortable when I'm sad. Like it kind of like hurts, but there's also some wisdom in some of these emotions. So, um, yeah, so that's my current, um, work that I'm doing on myself is can I pause, take some breaths, notice what I'm feeling, you know, like joy, you know, I'm 49 years old and I make up another story that a lot of guys out there are not good at expressing joy. We have to be so cool and everything. Like, you know, I'll ask you, Kurt, just for fun. When was the last time you literally jumped for joy? 
like, in other words, not, you weren't just happy. Like it was a physical manifestation of joy. I just wonder if any memory pops to you in this moment. <laughs> oh no. And I, you know, this is almost triggering for me because of my relationship with it. Hmm. And I am working right now. I literally have a reminder on my phone in the morning that says, what if this was fun? Hmm. Just to remind myself like, oh, that could be possible. And in a men's group, I went through a process where we had to embody anger, shame, sadness, and joy. Mm. And nobody could do joy any justice. And the closest I got was being so happy and grateful that I had engaged on this healing path, if you will, and that it made me feel better. Mm -hmm. And I didn't feel terrible all the time. And that really lit me up. And that was maybe the closest in the last five, 10 years. And that's so sad. What is our aversion to it? And, and I judge that the aversion is we don't look cool. Like we are taught from when we were in fourth grade that we have to look cool all the time. And it's not cool to look like you're jumping for joy. And even like in some of my, like I love playing sports. I love playing pickleball and I love playing basketball. Like even that, I treat it with the seriousness, like this competitive nature. And I'm now getting better at just really letting joy because all joy is here to teach us is something needs to be celebrated. And if we're just celebrating it between our ears, um, it's for me, that's not as fulfilling. So we need to kind of let these emotions express themselves to create space for the next emotion to show up. And, uh, you know, you work with a lot of men and it seems like you and I have a lot of the same stories, which is awesome. makes me want to connect with you beyond this interview for sure. Um, if I can do anything for men is let's just, know that when we were four years old, we were experts at this. So when somebody's like, well, I can't do that anymore. Well, you used to know how to do it. So just tap into that in a way that seems friendly to you. And uh, it's funny, there's this video, I was in a workshop and there was this video of this man being told that he was about, he was going to be a grandfather for the first time. And there was like a security camera or whatever, like a nanny cam. And he like hugged his wife and all that. And then his wife left the room. And then he literally jumped for joy. So in other words, it was in him, but he was too cool to celebrate this with his wife in a way that it needed to be expressed. So I think it's in there for all of us. It's just, are we really good at, you know, being willing and being brave enough to look silly? And some of the times I am and sometimes I'm not. Man, this is such... It's strangely important work. You know, we go into the shadow all the time and it's like, okay, what is there to heal? And like, what is your relationship with joy? Oh my goodness. This is bringing up a lot for me. And I just had a birthday party for my two oldest boys. They have birthdays like a week apart and they're seven and nine now. And the kids were just going wild, like absolutely thrilled. Nothing in the way of the joy as they were chasing each other around this like ninja parkour gym. Mm -hmm. And that was a good lesson for me to go like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. And in fact, when you said it's not cool, what that brought up for me, and I just would like to share this very short story. When I started playing hockey in a league, when I was six or seven years old, I remember scoring my first goal and I jumped for joy. And somebody on my team said, why did you jump? And from that moment, like maybe that was, maybe that's this like bomb in my head that doesn't let me think that I can do that without feeling uncool. Mm -hmm. And so that's a very important thing that I'm going to do some work on. I really appreciate you brought that up. Dude, I just got goosebumps when you told that story because I mean, maybe there's 10 other stories like that, but if I were to make a guess, like that is exactly it. The fact that you can zero in on a moment is so powerful. And I'm just so glad that you're able to even become aware of that because most of these memories are just buried and it's hard to get, get to them and you have it available to you. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it would be interesting. I would love to talk to you more about that. Is like, what do you want to tell that little guy? How old was he when, when seven? Happened? So what would you want to tell that little guy or even better? What does that little guy want to tell you right now? So anyways, and you said you have two sons. How many kids do you have? Uh, Three sons now. Oh my God, dude. That's awesome. Nine, seven, and two. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's a lot of uh, inner child work to be done there. And like, Mm. I can feel the energy right now in my body going like, oh, I could say all these sorts of things, which is Mm. like, because I'm happy, because it's awesome, because I just Mm. scored, because like, Mm. I love playing hockey. And this is actually where I'm finding my joy nowadays is well, trying to, is in hockey again. I stopped playing for a long time. And in the last number of years, even when I score, you know, you sort of do a fist bump and it's like, 
oh, celebrations are like one of those things now that you can look extra cool yeah. because you see it in like the NHL, you see it in the NFL, guys are doing like super cool, like dances or mm-hmm. whatever. And you can't just like put your hands up in the air and be like, yes, I love yeah. this. This is amazing. You have to like look cool in your celebration. So maybe I will use that to explore joy. Well, it's so funny. And we have these models like you, you know, NHL, NBA, like think of, you know, when they win the World Series, there's a bunch of men who are behaving like boys jumping for joy. So we have those models. I have those models, yet I'm still trying to fit this set of lies of what it means to be a man and a man needs to be in control all the time and all that. And then one quick thing, and I don't know if we're going to get to the men's work piece or not, but um, I think regarding this men's group that I co-founded about eight years ago, um, I've been part of a lot of different men's groups, Mankind Project and some others. And I think that they're wonderful organizations. But the one thing I think most men's groups miss, and I wonder what your comment is, I think that we're so into shadow and we're so serious about how important this is. I think that there's a, a, a half of it that we're missing is, can we celebrate our wins and not just beat ourselves up for the way we showed up when yesterday or last week? So um, that's something that I, we do the deep shadowy work in this men's group. And we also, we just came, we just finished a 31 person weekend in Wisconsin and it was pretty well balanced. Half of it was like serious looking inward. And the other half is us, you know, playing floor hockey and dodgeball and doing all these kind of silly fun things that we would have done if we were eight years old. So I just wonder in your uh, men's groups, what is the balance between let's call seriousness and levity? Yeah, it's um, probably 99 to one. Right. That's been my experience too. And even when we say, oh, we've really got to just do a social weekend, Mm -hmm. that gets punted over and over and over until it's like maybe once a year. Yeah. And so I really appreciate that because I have just started two men's groups for dads with dad work. And as I'm going through like what I want this to look like, I like to feel very supportive in this. And so Mm -hmm. I'm willing to hold space for a lot of the darkness and it's making me think, and I really appreciate the reflection, where do I help to guide these men, myself included, into joy and into silliness and into fun to not just, and this is very important in my life, I went from feeling negative anger, rage, frustration, sadness all the time. And when I found myself in neutral, I was like, oh, what a relief. Mm-hmm. Like, thank goodness I've done this work. And then I went, well, what about love? I don't know how to feel love now. And I don't know how to feel joy now. And so that has been my work recently is like really trying to step into a full bodied love mm. and like a melting of love with my children in my arms, with my wife. And again, with all of this joy gets like thrown over the shoulder, like, ah, eh, we'll get to that line one day or not at all. And that yeah. must be okay because I'm a man. Yeah. We don't prioritize it. I don't prioritize it as much as I should. So yeah, I think you and I are sharing similar experiences here for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I would love to get to the men's group um, in, well, maybe a few minutes here, uh, but I do have questions about like parenting still because I'm very interested. Um, I considered what my parenting goals were at one point. And I know a lot of people who say, you know, oh, I want my kid to be able to get into the best schools. Mm -hmm. I want my kid to be successful and all this kind of stuff. And I just wanted my kids to be able to like love and be loved. Mm-hmm. I wanted them to be resilient and acceptable, ac- accepting of themselves. Mm-hmm. These were the things that came up. And I wonder what your parenting mm-hmm. goal is, or if you have anything to say on success, happiness, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. My goal changes. Um, it evolves. I think if you would ask me this when my kids were born, I'd be like, I would say what all parents say. I just want them to be happy. And then I realize that that does not make space for sadness and anger and fear. So now, I mean, it's probably overly simplistic, but what I want for my kids is what I want for myself. And what I want to be is whole. And that's the word I use. And that means can I create the space for myself to experience these other emotions? Because happiness is fleeting, just like sadness and anger and fear and grief and all these, like every emotion I, I think of, the waves crashing on a beach, like the anger will show up and then the anger will dissipate and then joy will show up. And so when we say we just want our kids to be happy, that's, I think that's a dangerous goal for us to have. And, you know, we um, spend a lot of our time making sure our kids are successful and my wife and I are not close to perfect parents, but I will say something that I'm proud of is 
we prioritize emotional literacy, emotional intelligence way beyond actual, you know, school and colleges and all that stuff. Like we write, um, we write uh, notes for our kids. If they're having a bad day and they need to sleep in, we will say, yeah, I'll write you a note and you can get in in third period so you can sleep in a little better, like a self-care day. And I know some people out there that would never dream because what are you teaching your kids if you let them, you know, show up late for school or something like that? What I think is I'm teaching my kids how to be compassionate towards oneself. And if you're burnt out and you need a little bit of time or even like a whole day. Now, it's interesting if my kids want to take a second self-care day two days in a row, then there's an interesting discussion that's going to need to happen before we sign off on that. But I just make up the story that a lot of us parents are, there's a documentary out there. I think it's 10 years old called the race to nowhere. And it's this idea that we got to, you know, it, it starts so early, <laughs> like some people, when their kids are born, they'll get on a waiting list for preschool. So, cause they got to get in the right preschool because God forbid they're not in the right preschool. And then you go to grade school and then high school and then college. And it's all like with this end in mind and we're forgetting about everything that happens in the moment. So if my goal as a parent is just to make sure my kids get into a good college, I think that's a shortcut to what it means to be a human being because I know a lot of people will graduate from college with a good job and they're miserable. So that's, that shouldn't be our goal. Our goal is can our kids manage the world and you know as society continues to move towards you know virtual reality and robots and computers i think the one skill that is going to be really needed um is emotional intelligence and yeah i'm sure we can teach robots to feel and all that stuff but i think it'll be a while before those jobs take the place of all the other jobs that are being taken from from a technology standpoint so there's a lot there i don't know if how that lands for you yeah, no, it, pardon me. It brings up um, the flip side of that, which is like, what is the boundary mm-hmm. with, okay, now you've had enough self-care days, you know, oh, I need another self-care day, so to speak, dad. Um, how do you have those conversations? Well, that's the thing, like, <clears throat> maybe we'll talk about sex here for a second. Um, it's my goal as a parent and my wife's goal as a parent is it's it's simple, discussion, not discipline. A lot of parents will say, well, when I was, when I got out of line, my kid, my, my dad hit me or my dad grounded me or my mom did this or that. And that just shuts off lines of communication. So what Kathy and I try to do is just keep the lines of communication open. So we'll talk about sex for a second, because that's always a hot topic about how do we talk to our kids about sex? First thing is it's not a single talk. I don't know what you got, Kurt, but what I got was my mom died six years ago. She was drunk because she was so uncomfortable. And she told my brother and I the mechanics of sex. And one thing that she said um, was sex isn't dirty. Sex isn't dirty. Sex isn't dirty. Like that's what I remember. I remember where I was in the house I grew up in the kitchen. I remember exactly where I was listening to this message. And what I got out of that was sex is dirty. Sex is dirty. Sex is dirty. So, and that happened once. So with my daughters and my wife is such a good model for this. It's just an ongoing discussion. It's not a big talk. It's like two minutes in the kitchen about whatever. And we use whatever's happening in our lives or what TV shows we're watching or what's going on with their friends. And we have a discussion. So you get in and get out because the minute it becomes luxury, you're done. Like you've lost them. So we try to have a whole bunch of really small conversations about it. And of course, there's times when they really need some support where we sit down at the kitchen table and help them through it. But most of our education about sexuality, drugs, you name it, it's just quick blurbs. Um, And the more you do that, the more those lines of communication stay open. So. Mm, yeah, thank you. That was one of the things I was going to bring up in your notes. You mentioned discussion, not discipline. And it's like, that's such the perfect way to go there. You also mentioned no fear household. And I wonder if that's part of the same sort of side of the coin. Yeah. And sometimes I'm afraid, I'm afraid that my kids don't fear me enough. And I'll give you an example. Like I saw one of my kids one time taking the their phone and transcribing stuff from somebody else's homework onto theirs. And they're just doing it right in front of me. I'm like, God, can't you kids be at least a little afraid of, but you know, we don't do grounding and we don't, we never do. Actually we did timeouts with my oldest like once, uh, but we don't do um, disciplinary stuff. We just try to 
cultivate some type of interaction. That doesn't mean we don't have boundaries. Like, you know, there's a time when my 18 year old was 16 and she said she'd be home by 1130. She was up, she was, she was out till 1230 and she didn't check in with us. So we're like, you know what, tonight you're going to, you're going to stay in, but it doesn't mean like I'm punishing you, blah, blah, blah. Like we made an agreement. You said you'd be home at 1130. You got home at 1230 and you didn't check in with us. So tonight you're going to need to stay in. So it's not, once again, what you're saying, it's where are you saying it from? What place are you saying it from? So, um, yeah, it's just, so, but my goal, and this has always been a goal for my parent, is that when my kids come home from wherever they happen to be that day, that they have a safe place to come home to where they're not afraid. And a lot of parents would challenge me on that and say, well, they have to be at least a little afraid. And my judgment is the world is hard enough. The world is going to give them plenty of lessons. Um, my job is to make sure that when they do have that crappy day, that they can be open enough to discuss anything it is with us so we can help guide them in a, in a way that we think will help. Yeah, that's such uh, maybe a difficult part of what I'm trying to look into now as I step out of being sort of the most harmful thing in their lives because I was very angry and ragey and really mean for some years mm -hmm. of my children's lives. And as I come to the other side of it, now I go, okay, I'm no longer the biggest thing I need to work on. How do I parent? Mm. Like, what does the active act of parenting look like? And it's like, yeah, it's the four S's. It's being safe, seen, soothed, and secure, yeah. or as Jason would say, supported and challenged. Yeah. And how do you you know, challenge along the way by setting those boundaries. And I think that's so important. I talk about this in my, um, I've got a free email course that goes into like consequences and boundaries, not punishment. Mm -hmm. So how can you set boundaries that feel good for you and that potentially serve your children without then having to punish or be punitive in your discipline? Because discipline is to teach. Yes. It's not to punish. Yes. And I think we miss that. And I feel good sometimes in a perverse sort of way, punishing. Mm -hmm. And I have to catch myself and say, actually, disregard what I said. I was doing that from a place of anger and fear. What we're going to do is this. Here's how mm. I feel. How do you feel about it? Mm. And that's a very important skill because as you are saying, I feel just in my own life, I couldn't go to my parents with anything. And I got the talks, which was, if you're ever out and you're ever drinking and you need a ride home, like, please call us. It's like, no, man, I'd rather drive home. And I know how dangerous that is than ask you as yeah. a teenager, because yeah. I didn't have that safety because mm. of the punitiveness. Mm -hmm. And so that is, it's very hard though, because my judgment is like, well, they need to learn. Mm -hmm. And what if I'm the one delivering that message? But as I hear you say, the world is hard enough. And can I just be that safe harbor in the launching pad? Again, go back to Dan Siegel um, for our children. It's a very complex discussion just within myself. Well, and there's also like, you know, because they're like, oh, if all we're doing is providing a safe place, then my kid's going to end up being 28, smoking weed in the basement, never having to leave. And that's a story that is made up. And um, like I said, my parenting philosophy isn't perfect. My children certainly aren't perfect. But it's it's been working out really well for us to be able to have this open line of communication. You know, one of my mantras used to be, I don't say it so much anymore, is just keep them safe and get out of their way. Like just keep them safe and get out of their way. And it's funny, you talked about how it does feel satisfying to be punitive and, and be angry and all that. And I think it probably does for a moment and then shame will probably set in and you start feeling guilty and all that stuff. So um, yeah, it's it's all internal work. And uh, not something that does come easy. It takes discipline. Talked about practices. I go in and out with my meditation practice, but what I do know, the scientific evidence is meditation is something that's really important. And um, it's a muscle that we, it's like us going to the gym. And if we can practice meditation, it could be 10 minutes in the morning. It could be two minutes in the middle of the day. Uh, but the more we stretch that muscle, the better we are at kind of locating where we are in a certain place. Because you talked about discipline and you talked about boundary setting. It's funny. It's all kind of the same thing. It's, but from what place is this coming from? Because my consequences to my daughter was, all right, you're not going to go out tonight. But am I like being like all pissy and mean about it and say, you don't disrespect me. Like this is our agreement. And, uh, this is what's going to happen as a result of this consequence. 
you can call that discipline. I mean, you can call that punitive because she can't go out on Saturday instead of, um, because of what we decided. But, um, it's, it's, it's not what we label something. It's where is it coming from? And usually for us parents it's coming from some lesson that we learned when we were kids and we're just trying to not screw our kids up in the same way our parents were trying their best, but didn't do that good of a job with us or they did the best they could, but there's plenty of things that I don't replicate that they did to me. Yeah. And that's a very interesting point is not wanting to screw them up in the same way we got screwed up. And so we overcorrect, or at least I overcorrect For sure. in a way that's like, Oh, you really got to learn this. Cause it really hurts if you don't do it. And it's like, Oh man, I've got to just like get out of the way sometimes and let it happen. And then the thing that I didn't have and the reason that the lesson hurt so bad was because I didn't have the support. Mm-hmm. And so what if you could do that and you could get the consequence and then you had somewhere safe to come back? Well, Would that be enough? And what's interesting is like whenever our kids piss us off for whatever reason, it's so easy to like get pissed off and react. But when I'm in a good place, I would, I find myself seeing, okay, let's say my kid's disrespectful to me. One thing I can do to work on myself is how is it that I'm disrespectful to her? Or how is it that I'm disrespectful to somebody else? So it's much easier to get pissy and moany to somebody who's showing you a part of yourself that you don't like. So can, can I bring some awareness around how I'm disrespectful or the opposite of that story is like, how is she actually respectful? Like in this one instance where she talked it back to me, she's respectful. But last Tuesday when we went for a walk, she was nothing but so it's when we talk about doing our work, that's what it is. It's like noticing, Oh wow, I'm really pissed right now. Where is this coming from? And uh, you know, it's a long journey, but it's something I'm trying to cultivate more and more in my life. Yeah, that reminds me of the work by Byron Katie when you flip the yeah. so-called truth around. Sure. And instead of like, oh, my daughter's disrespectful, it's actually my daughter's respectful or I mm. am disrespectful and then finding those. And I sometimes ask my my children, when have you seen me do this? If they do something that I don't judge to be nice or good mm. or whatever, mm. correct. And it's like, when have you seen me do this? Because either you're getting this directly from me or I can shine the light on this is not how I have attempted to model. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe where did you pick it up or what conversation can we have around that? But typically it's like, oh, yeah, like I can see exactly where I did this and you're picking it up. So it's no wonder that you're now yelling to get your way because I used to yell, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so when you say that, do they come up with evidence to back up your story? Hey, have you seen me get angry? And do they do they give it back to you and say, yes, this is when I see it, dad? Sometimes. And I, I, you know what, to be very transparent, I often will only say it when I know that I'm not the one modeling it (laughs) as like (laughs) almost like a lesson because I am feeling weak in that moment or I'm feeling like I need to feel better. And this is Mm. my version of getting that good feeling rather than Mm. punishing. And so to be fully transparent, that's usually when it comes up. But sometimes it's like, well, yeah, you know, like I, I know darn well. I don't need them to tell me mm. that I used to scream at them. Mm. You know, so when they scream at each other, it's like, okay, I understand. I see that. Like you, you have seen me do this. And I've talked to them a lot about this. Like when we were younger, I felt this way and it led me to react and act in a way that I don't think is acceptable. And I'm sorry that you have to live this now. And I'm trying to do better. And here's mm. what I'm doing. I'm trying to notice, I'm trying to meditate. And they see me do all of these things which I think helps. Mm. So yeah, the short answer is like, I, I'm very strategic when I say that because I am worried if they do tell me. Um, and, you know, sometimes, especially with the anger thing, it's very obvious and they'll be like, yes. Mm. My favorite part of what you just said was your honesty. Like, hey, when I just told that story, there was some strategic, there's a strategy of when I do share it. So it could have been very easy for you to just be like, oh no, you, you could have responded I think inauthentically, but instead you owned it, which was awesome. Like, yeah, usually when I ask that question is when I know I'm not behaving that way because I want to win because my ego wants to win this argument. So, yeah, thank you for the reflection. And I think that's what we're both probably trying to do here is like, where can you just get more honest? Where can Mm -hmm. you become more whole? Where can you become authentic? Because if I had been inauthentic, it would have been buried somewhere. Mm -hmm. Like it would not have just slipped away. I feel like Mm -hmm. the same sort of thing with you. It would have lived in the body somewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm really trying to do that so that I don't have anywhere to hide from myself. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's scary, scary being honest, but we got to show those messy sides of ourselves if we're going to get anywhere. 
Yeah, this is a lesson I learned within the last month. I was feeling unsupported and like I couldn't make friends, specifically in some of the men's groups that I'm in. And I started asking around and I was challenged. Well, when was the last time you shared vulnerably? Mm. It's like, well, you know, I lead the groups and I want to take up all that much time. And it ended up being that like it might have been a year since I had shared. And as I went to my men's group and I said, look, guys, here's what's real. I don't feel like you necessarily have my back. Mm. And I think it's because of what I'm doing. Mm. And when I shared what I needed, like, look, to be supported, I need to be checked on occasionally without me being the first one to say something I need Mm. to be celebrated when something happens. I want you to come over and like bring me gifts when I have a child, for example, that feels good to me. When I said these things, I had a man reflect to me, well, like when you show up as being so perfect, because that's my defense mechanism, I'll just be perfect. Everyone will love me. Uh, When you show up as being perfect, I don't feel like there's anything I can add as an imperfect man to your life. Mm. Where do I breathe life into you when you're so got it all together, there's nothing for me to do. And so in being messy and in being vulnerable, I'm learning as hard and as painful as it feels to me that that is where intimacy is built. Oh, that's the power of um, <clears throat> any groups, but men's groups in particular, like, you know, can you show up as, as the part of you that is kind of wounded and broken and, you know, you're trying to create the facade. So all the guys see, and by the way, I'm raising my hand. I, would and some sometimes still do that. I'm the co-founder of this men's group and people look look to me as the leader because I helped create it. And if I want these men to go into uh, this cave, then I got to be willing to go into that cave myself. It's funny. It reminds me of one story. Um, when my daughters are younger, we used to do this YMCA princess thing. And uh, it was a interesting experience and I did it for a few years and I got so sick of it because all of the conversations between these guys were so artificial and so about work and so about sports. And I'm just like, I just, I hate this weekend because it's just based on all this bullshit. And I don't know if I'm allowed to swear or not. Um, it's just based on all this bullshit. And, um, then one year I decided I'm going to just go in vulnerably and I did. And some, you know, I walk up to a man, I don't know. And he says, how are you doing? I'm like, actually, I'm not doing too well. I'm struggling with my relationship with my wife, <laughs> just as a science experiment, just to see what would happen. And I wasn't making it up. Like I was sharing some, some tougher things to share. And what's interesting is most of the guys jumped in like, oh my God, this is so much more refreshing than the BS that we usually talk about. Some of the guys turned around and walked away very quickly. Like, wow, I don't know who this guy is and why is he sharing these things with me? But the point is what I learned from that and what you learned from that guy who taught you is somebody's got to make a move. And if, if, if I was waiting for the other guy to share vulnerably, I waited four years and it wasn't happening. So instead I just decided to model what it is that I wanted. And what's funny is when we do that, then good things can happen. So. Yeah, absolutely. This um, reminds me very much of something that a past guest, David Stegman said on this podcast. He said, most men are thirsty for a deep dive for Mm. vulnerability and very few men ever get the invitation. Yeah. So be the invitation yeah. and see what happens. And I say this in the course as well. Like, can you be a little bit more vulnerable to your group of friends, understanding that some men won't be there? Mm. Maybe it will cost you a friendship, but at mm. the cost of what? Carrying on like this indefinitely with nobody seeing your true heart? Mm. Is that worth it? I don't I don't think so personally. I don't want friendships like that very much like you. I want to go in and be like, hey, here's what's real. Mm. Like, this is just what's happening. I don't have to be like, oh, can I say this? Can I not say this? Uh, And so being the vulnerable one, I think is very important. And I do want to talk about your men's group, Men Mm. Living. Is that right? Yes, that's the name of the organization. So we, you brought up a few things, um, quality of life correlating with quality of relationships, the golf weekend that changed you forever. That's obviously a huge cliffhanger and uh, four archetypes. So you can go there or you could go nowhere. um, But I'd love to hear like what comes up for you when I ask about men living? Yeah. So it started, it's kind of, this might be a little repetitive, but I went on a golf weekend when I was like, I don't know, 32 with my college buddies whom I loved. Like I, I had wonderful college friends and I kept in touch with them and I still keep in touch with them. Not as it's getting them a little more difficult, but I got home from this long weekend where we golfed and we drank and we went to the casino and we did all these things that are typically on a guy's weekend. 
And I got home and my wife said, how was it? I said, it was great. I'm a little exhausted, but it was so fun. She's like, how are the guys? Cause she and I went to school together. So she knows who they are. I'm like, they're great. They're great. She's like, I know, but what's going on? Cause I haven't seen them in a few years. What's going on in their worlds. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. And it's because I spent 72 hours with these men whom I love. I, I could share with them that I love them. I did not have a single moment of authentic conversation with these men. And I, and meanwhile, my wife will go out to dinner with her girlfriends for like two and a half hours and know everything about relationships and what they're struggling with. And I'm like, wow. And then I kind of like had a snapshot in my head, like I'm on this trajectory where I have really shallow relationships and it's got to stop. So um, I started this men's group with a good friend of mine in my living room where we just talk about, you know, we come over the topic and we um, have some authentic conversations around, at least that's how it started. Now we're an international uh, not-for-profit and we're much more organized. It's, it's something that's very fulfilling to me. And the one thing I was going to tell you is uh, there's this study, I don't know if you've heard of it, but there's a famous TED Talk, and it was uh, by a guy by the last name of Waldinger. And there was a 1938 Harvard study, and it was about adult development. I don't know if you're familiar with it. And they interviewed 268 Harvard sophomores in 1938. This study is still going to this day. And the idea of the study was to reveal clues to leading healthy and happy lives. And what they found out is that the men who are leading the healthiest, most fulfilling lives, the direct correlation is their connection with other people or other men. Um, and it's a better predictor of the quality of somebody's life based on the relationships than it is how much they smoke or how much they drink. Like the predictor is how deeply connected are these men? Because they only studied men because back in the 30s, we didn't, you know, I say this tongue in cheek, you know, women weren't important enough to study. So, um, but these, some of these men are still alive, you know, and it is crazy to think that um, after all these years that the best predictor of the quality of somebody's life is based upon the quality of their relationships. And for women, I think, men and women are wired the same. I think the culture, cultural conditioning is what stops us in our relational tracks. So all I'm trying to do is create a space with this organization and other and support other organizations. I would love to support your men's groups in any way that felt friendly. Um, I just want to keep uh, having creating a space for these authentic, vulnerable connections. And that's what we've been doing for the last eight or nine years. And um, since then, we you know, have eight or nine programs every single week. And we have men from all over the world that get on 99% of them are virtual. Um, and 99% of them are free of charge. Like we don't want money to get in the way of a man doing his work. So, um, those are a few of the, um, things about the organization. I appreciate you giving me an opportunity to talk about it. Mm, yeah, that's wonderful. And I have been asked by a lot of men, <clears throat> where can I go for a free good experience? And I'm launching um, a free group, which I think is very important. The um, I just I didn't know where else to go, to mm -hmm. be honest. And I really am very, very grateful that I've learned about this now uh, because now I have a place to send men, which yes. is so vital if they're on that path where they just like need a place to go to be seen, to be heard, supported, and challenged. I mean, these are about in my opinion, developing secure attachment with other men mm. in relationship. And it's funny you mentioned the Harvard study because uh, I was just told about that last week. Mm. And it's like, here are the facts. And it's I see it in my own life play out. Like my grandparents are in their sort of mid-70s now, and they are just like intellectually top-notch, like, man, they could be in their 50s. Yeah. And it's, in my estimation, because they have like, I can hardly get in to have dinner with my grandparents because they're like, oh, let me look a month in advance to make sure we don't have anybody else coming over because mm. they are so social. And I compare that with the other side of my other grandparents. And it's, you know, there's so many circumstances and situations. And in this anecdotal report, what I see is they just don't slow down because they're constantly engaged, constantly being filled up. Their cup is being filled by other people all the time. And for the longest time, I was scared. Mm. I was like, wow, this is the indicator of a successful, healthy life. Like, I'm going to die early because I don't have any friends. Yeah. And so that's why the last 
two, three, four years for me have been diving into men's work, building community, like learning how to be in relationship with other people, never mind other men, like with my own wife. Yeah. How do I build this relationship now? And that's been my work. So yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Well, and one of the foundational teachings, and this certainly isn't mine, there's an organization out there called A Call to Men. And one of the one of the founders is a guy named Tony Porter, and he had this other TED Talk that uh, was about the man box. I'm guessing you probably have talked about that. And the man box is this box that we put men into, and we are only as, you know, our, our worth is only based upon how much money we have or how many trophies we have in the trophy case or how many women we have sex with. And it it ha- it offers this incomplete version of what it means to be a man. And we got to start breaking that wide open and splitting it apart and tearing it to shreds. Because for me, that's not what mature masculinity looks like. You know, talk about being strong. Strength is being vulnerable with your friends and putting yourself at risk. That's so much stronger than some bully who wants to make fun of you for doing whatever. And it's funny, like, I guess I'll, I'll plead to the guys out there listening, like, think about it. How do we show up? How do I show up as a man? So when I'm in the bar and I'm talking with a bunch of guys and somebody says some type of sexist or racist joke, it doesn't happen as often as it used to, but it still does. My question is, we have, I have this fear that if I say something, I'm going to be judged and we're going to, I'm going to be, you know, uh, casted out of the group. Um, so a litmus test for me is how willing I am to do what it takes to start changing the norm around equality and perception of women. You know, how many of us said, you know, you throw like a girl when you were a little, I heard that all the time. I used to say that all the time. And all I know is I see some softball players out there that can throw the ball a lot better than I can. Um, <laughs> yeah. So my question, so it's kind of a, this is all good in theory, but how good am I at, at it in practice? And I still struggle. There's times when I'm like, you know what? I just, I'm too afraid, but there's other times I'm like, you know what? I would say, I would probably pull the guy aside and say, you know what? I've said those things. And I'm just saying these days for me, it's just not cool anymore. And because if I attack him in front of a bunch of other guys, then all of a sudden it can get defensive. And sometimes it requires that that warrior energy to kind of step into a place with this strength and uh, energy. But um, I also try to be a little more strategic in how I can show up and make this world a more equal place for my wife and my daughters and my sisters and brothers of color out there. Um, as a white straight man, I was born with, I, I was born with this privilege that I didn't do anything to earn. So what I'm trying to do is use some of this influence that I've been given and doesn't mean I don't work hard. I work hard, but I've been given this influence and how is it that I'm using my influence? Like just check when, when you're in a meeting with a bunch of men and maybe some women, notice how often men interrupt women right after me too. I notice that like, Oh my God, this woman is being interrupted a lot faster than some of the men in this group. So can I notice that? And then can I step in and say, you know what? I don't think she was done with her thoughts. So maybe we can let her complete her thought, you know, just some things like that. Mm, yeah. And these are, <clears throat> yeah. And these are such important um, sort of, in personal, I suppose, personal uh, challenges to be authentic mm-hmm. with what we were just talking about before. Like, yeah, maybe nobody else would notice. Maybe nobody would know that like you didn't say anything, but you will. Mm-hmm. And how does that land? And do you, can you live with yourself? And can, is that whole, like you were saying, you just want your kids to be whole. You want to feel whole. Is that wholeness? If you're holding back what you value and what you, what is real for you. Yeah. Um, so I love that as a challenge. And if you take nothing else, well, you will take so much from this podcast. Like I, I can't even say that. Take everything you want from this podcast and challenge yourself to step more fully into your authentic self. Mm. Um, Todd, this has been unreal. I want to keep going for mm. you know another hour. But um, where can people find more about you and Zen Parenting and uh, Men Living? Men Living. Yeah. Yeah. So our website is zenparentingradio.com. Um, my wife just wrote this amazing book. It's her fourth book. And it basically takes, we've done 640 podcasts and she takes all of them, all the best things that she has learned from being a mom and put them into one 300 page book. And she used it through the lens of the chakra system. So it's kind of an interesting way that she delivered it. 
Um, so that's zenparentingradio.com. We have 640 podcasts that you can choose from. Uh, menliving.org. Um, it's free. It's checkout. We have a whole buffet menu of items in the way that people can interact with the group. Some guys like, you know, digital, like with certain platforms, we have connecting platforms, like um, it's kind of like Slack, but it's called Discord. Um, we also uh, do Zoom meetings uh, five, ti- five times every single week, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday twice and Saturday. And it's just it's called full house meetings to show up. And we have a trained facilitators that there to lead an authentic conversation. We all, we also do some in-person weekend retreats and things like that. And then uh, lastly, I'm a life and leadership coach and that's at toddadamscoaching.com. So. Amazing. Todd, thank you so much. Uh, I can't wait to continue the conversation. Yes, absolutely. It's great having uh, great being on. I really appreciate the time, Kurt. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. It means the world. To find out more about everything that we talked about in the episode today, including show notes, resources, and links to subscribe, leave a review, work with us, go to dad.work slash pod. That's D-A-D dot W-O-R-K slash P-O-D. Type that into your browser, just like a normal URL, dad.work slash pod. You'll find everything there you need to become a better man, a better partner, and a better father. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.